0: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Keith Brown, and today I have the real pleasure of speaking with Christina Greer, who is the author of Black, Ethnic, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm
1: great. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on uh, and, and to have read the book. Before we get to the book, maybe you can share just a little bit about yourself, uh, where you've been, where you are, uh, anything that you care to share about who you are?
1: Okay, well, um, currently I'm a professor at Fordham University at Lincoln Center in New York City. Um, I got my graduate degree at Columbia University in New York, and I spent my undergraduate years at Tufts in Medford, Massachusetts, and that's actually where we open with the book. Um Whereas uh when I entered Tufts in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, I should say, uh, I was part of the largest black class ever uh, in the history of the university, which was roughly 3.3%, which shook out to about 60 students out of the class. Um, and so that was my very first time actually ever going to school and being in an academic setting with other African-Americans, or what I perceived were African-Americans, and I later found out it was much more complicated than just Sort
0: of Black Americans in the university setting. For, um, and you begin the book uh, telling that story about what what I guess is is essentially your first day of college. Um, I wonder if you can just t- tell a little bit more about that that story, that very personal story that begins the book, and and how it how it sets up your your motivation um, for for essentially writing uh, writing this book. Right. Well, I mean,
1: I was really excited. Um, to be in an academic setting with other black students. I had never really experienced that before. I went to private schools my whole life in Philadelphia and then in Illinois, and so I had never really had that experience. And so when we went um, to Cape Cod for a a weekend, um, an optional weekend, which I chose to do, um, as did several students, There was a question by one of the moderators where he asked us to close our eyes and raise our hands, if our parents told us uh, when we got to college not to get wrapped up with the black kids, which I thought was a really odd question because I was so eager to get wrapped up with the black kids when I went to college, and I saw that the vast majority of people had their hands raised, but those students were also of African and Caribbean descent. And so even though we were all sort of very close um, in different capacities, and we were all part of the Black Student Association, or at the time it was called the pan African Alliance, um, those students also had a dual membership in the Caribbean Club and also the African Student Association, um, as well as a membership in the Black Student Association. So they had this sort of race and ethnic um, narrative uh, that I just, I, I really hadn't investigated before.
0: And that's what makes up much of the book. And, and this wasn't just—you um, know—you're you're telling a story; it isn't, isn't just about your own personal experience. So that animates much of the book. You also comment on the very limited literature that exists in a number of different fields, not just political science, on African and Afro-Caribbean politics. Right. Uh, you you all you note that there have been these great breakthroughs in, in Latino and Asian American uh, research, um, but but the, there's still you know sort of limit, limitations. Um, Uh, I wonder if there's any specific pieces of that literature that you drew heavily on in approaching your subject matter. That is, research, uh, recent research on Latinos or Asian Americans that you brought to your subject matter.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the the scholars who were who were sort of leading the charge with Asian American. political science research, you know, Jane John, Karthik Ramakrishnan, Teiku Lee, you know, Natalie Vasuoka. I mean, these are scholars that are taking the qualitative and quantitative work and moving it forward in ways that we've just never seen before. You know, someone like Rudy De La Garza or Luis De Cipio, um for Latin, Latino politics. You know, I relied heavily on Rudolph Rogers' work because he's one of the, the main political scientists who looks at Afro-Caribbeans and black Americans because – much of the African-American literature essentially presumes that when they say African-American, um, that we're just talking about black people who were descendants of U.S. slavery, who've gone through the Great migration from South to North. And even if they aren't assuming that, they're never explicit about who they're talking about. Um, are they talking about first generation, second generation? You know, the, the countries are so varied across the Caribbean and across Africa. So when I looked at Ruel Rogers' work, he has some fantastic qualitative research, but no quantitative research in the book that um, that I largely lean on. So I wanted to have not only qualitative and quantitative work in conversation with one another, but what about this new, relatively new, but very growing African population? So what would happen if we made it a tripart story as opposed to just a bipart story between Afro-Caribbeans and black Americans? What if we added in Africans? And would that change some of the theories that, Sociologists, mainly from the CUNY system, you know, I'm thinking of Phil Kasnitz and Nancy Boner and John Mollenkopf, who's extra fluke scientist, Um, you know, and Mary Waters at Harvard. Like, if we added in a quantitative perspective as well as Africans, would that change some of these theories that they've spent many years sort
0: of uh, negotiating? Uh, You refer throughout the book to to, uh, black ethnic, and you refer um, as to the group as an elevated minority, mm-hmm. but not as a model minority. Right. What do you mean by drawing this distinction between these two terms?
1: Well, you know, oftentimes when we've heard the term model minority, it refers to Asian Americans for the most part. And what I found in my qualitative interviews is that so many African and Caribbean respondents didn't want to be, quote unquote, in last place, which means in, say, a racial hierarchy they're recognizing that black Americans are perceived to be on the bottom. That's why they are oftentimes choosing not to become American. They'd rather stay immigrant because for them to become American, they have to become black American. And so even though many whites that we interviewed, that I interviewed, um, say, and, you know, other scholars have looked at this as well, they say, oh, I can't really tell the difference, but once they do sort of figure out that someone's from the Caribbean or from Africa there are a lot of assumptions that are made about uh, a better work ethic um, a higher level of dedication to uh, either professionalism or to their school schoolwork so those black immigrants or those sort of black ethnics not black Americans but Afro-Caribbeans and Africans are seen as better than black Americans but obviously not as good as Asians so that's where I came up with the term an elevated minority in the sense that they'll never be on the status of a model minority, which is largely reserved for Chinese and Japanese and Korean students, for the most part, and South Asian students um, and individuals, but they're still elevated among uh, above black Americans.
0: Yeah, you've alluded a little bit to some of the um, methodological approach that you've taken, but I, I wonder if you can go into a little more depth about particularly which, which data you use and and how you go about using it. It seems like one of the one of the big contributions to the field is, is some of the novel data that you had access to, and the way in which you incorporated it into the subject matter. So, what did you look at?
1: Right. Well, I actually created my own data. Um, you know, I started this project in graduate school, as many social scientists do, um, you know, and ultimately my dissertation became the book. And I mean, the funny story about that is, you know, there's uh, you know, the National Black Election Study, which is a huge comprehensive study that has African Americans, complete oversample of African Americans, you know, over the span of, I think now, 15 years, um, you know, there's the National Election Study and, and the General Social Services Survey. And so these are all data sets that political scientists rely on consistently. But as I come through the National Black Election Study, I could not find an ethnicity question, which, you know, as a graduate student, I just assumed, okay, well, I just need to look a little closer. It's obviously there, right? I mean, the people who put this survey together, some of the most, you know, sort of um, tedious, you know, uh, sort of, they are some of the leading black scholars in the discipline. So clearly there's an ethnicity question, right? Clearly they, they have thought to put this in there. And the the day that I essentially printed out the entire codebook, you know, I, I searched it, you know, control F first, and then I said, you know what, I'm not finding it. It has to be here. So when I printed it out, I literally went page by page throughout the codebook and realized that black scholars had not put in an ethnicity question. Would you let me know? We clearly know that there's diversity within the black uh, population in the United States, but there's something about political science literature that just has not thought to recognize it. And so, you know, later on there's some studies in Michigan that have looked at Caribbean[s] and Blacks, but again, no Africans. So I actually looked at a union population in, in New York City, um, largely because I knew the president at the time, and he said that I could have access to the 18,000 members who were largely um, Black and Latino. So I did an oversampling of those members. And I wanted to use a union population um, just because I knew I could get controls for class. So I knew that the labor population had a very diverse sort of they have a very diverse white ethnic population, they have a diverse black ethnic and Latino ethnic population. But for the most part I wanted to make sure I wasn't looking at doctors and refugees and nannies and cab drivers and having some of the class distinctions actually um interfere with my my racial and ethnic analyses. So in that mm-hmm. sense I used an original survey that I that I created with about 450 participants. And then I also compared that with um pooling together years of the National Elections Survey and, and the, the National Elections Study and the General Social Survey.
0: And uh, you're then, as a result, able to disaggregate into some categories that that typically are are too small uh, to to really think and generalize about.
1: And then I also interviewed uh, members of the union so that I could help explain some of my local and national data. Um, So I had, you know, quotes from people saying how they felt, you know, or how they feel interacting with other blacks not in their ethnic group.
0: Now, much of this is about uh, public opinion and, and public attitudes that, that differ in some ways. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could you could maybe just talk a little bit about maybe this is something you expected uh, in one of these uh, categories of public opinion and and maybe a finding that, that then surprised you, that, that differences showed up where you didn't expect differences or where you expected big differences. Um, none ended up uh, appearing.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I thought... What I initially hypothesized, and this is um, in the conversation about the American dream, I initially hypothesized and I I fundamentally believe that the longer um, blacks were in the United States, the less likely they would be to subscribe to the American dream. Um, And so because of that, we know that there have been, you know, black Americans, and those are the people I classify as, you know, descendants of U.S. slavery, essentially ninth-generation Americans. Um, And then Afro-Caribbeans who have been here, you know, since – Largely since, you know, say the 1920s and then, you know, migration in the 1960s. And then Africans who are sort of the the newest arrived group of of individuals, you know, largely from either the 60s or primarily the 1980s. So I thought we would see, let's just say we put it on a spectrum, that black Americans would be the least invested, Afro-Caribbeans would be someplace in the middle, and then Africans would be the greatest invested in the American dream. And what I found was that Africans are indeed the most invested in the American dream. And what, you know, through my qualitative interviews, it's because many of them don't feel like they have an exit option or what Rell Rogers calls, you know, the exit option where you can ever move back to your home country. Um, You might go to visit, you might send um, remittances, but to actually live there is probably not an option for many people. So they're invested in making it work. What I found, though, with black Americans is that they were the middle group and Afro-Caribbeans were the least likely to believe in the American dream. And so through my qualitative interviews, I found that speaking to black Americans, they essentially adopted the attitude of you win some, you lose some, right? You could have a son that goes to Harvard, or you could have, you know, a daughter who ends up in the prison industrial complex. Um, You know, you could have um, a cousin who's on welfare, and you could also have a cousin who's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So black Americans were essentially um, in the interview saying, well, there's certain things that are in our control. There are many things that aren't. So you just kind of work hard, and that's kind of what happens in this country is a toss-up. Whereas Afro-Caribbeans, through the interviews, really felt frustrated in the sense that they felt like they came here to work hard, um, but they're seeing that other immigrants who don't have black skin... Um, have certain opportunities afforded to them because they're not black in any way, shape, or form. And so they're the least likely to feel like the American dream is actually what it's promised um, to be.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much of this relates to, to where you did your study in, in New York City. I wonder if you thought at all, and it's not in the book, but but I wonder if you thought at all about what this study would look like if you were looking at, um, let's say, uh, South Florida, which right. is... Which, um, uh uh in some ways newer but, but uh you know established uh Afro Caribbean uh communities or other parts of the country. Um what part of this can we attribute to the uniqueness of New York City and which part of this is, is unique to just the, the interactions that, that you're describing related to ethnic groups.
1: Right. Well I mean I thought about that quite a bit, right? Because I was trying to find another city that had a significant population of Africans and Caribbeans and black Americans. Um, And what I'm finding is that many cities, like Chicago, has a a very large growing African population, but not a very large Caribbean population. Um, Whereas D.C. has a growing African population, but not a large Caribbean population. So, you know, whereas South Florida, very large Caribbean population, not so much with Africans. So I think, you know, I think we might find something slightly different um, as far as just uh, perceptions of who works hard, Um, residential segregation, who sort of gets – who has better relationships with whites. But I think, you know, in just some of the academic conversations I've had with individuals who live across the country, I think that – And yet also comparing it to national data, which is Africans and Caribbeans and black Americans from across um, the country. Granted, it's pooled over years, but that data sort of mirrors very nicely the New York data. So I think that we can actually use this, if not as an extrapolation, full stop, but as a launching period or a launching point so that we can better ask these questions in the future. So what I say in the book often is that, listen, I'm the first person who's just sort of trying to crack this code with these three very important groups. I'm welcoming more people to sort of do these studies. You know, what does Dallas look like? I mean, Dallas doesn't have a large um, Caribbean population, but they have a a very large growing African population. Um, You know, what do these new cities look like as new groups of blacks are trying to negotiate um, not just their political identity, but we know it's a lot more complicated when they're perceived scarce resources. I always say perceived scarce resources because we know that this country always finds resources when they want to find resources for who they want to find them for. So when it's perceived scarce resources, what does that do to intra-racial relationships between blacks, Caribbeans, and Africans as they all fight not to be in last place?
0: Yeah, I enjoyed the book a lot. I think there's just so much new stuff to learn here and and, uh, your, your approach is so balanced and and multi-method, it, it really does add a lot to not just the, the study of immigrant uh, politics, but also uh, many other aspects of, of American politics. What's next from you? Do you have a, a, a follow-up book project? Is, is it going to be in this same realm, or is there something new on your on your desk for this fall? Oh,
1: what's new on my desk is actually a brand-new book, but I actually am moving away from uh, the immigrant narratives for now, just because i don't i didn't want to be pigeonholed as sort of the race immigration lady um and so doing the historical background research on why it is people come to the united states um i sort of got a little more involved in the historical aspects of uh, american political development so my second project is actually on All the African-Americans who have run for the presidency or been nominated for the presidency from 1872 to 2008. And it's largely about symbolic candidates and alternative parties. The vast majority of these individuals, roughly 60, um, about 75% ran on alternative parties, so a third party that's not a Democratic or Republican ticket. and they were seen as symbolic candidates. You know, obviously they would, quote, unquote, never win. And their their campaigns were largely seen as failures, um, in some cases, as a joke. And so I, I started to look a little deeper, and I realized that roughly 40% of these 60 individuals were women. So why would a black woman in the 1960s or the 1970s or 80s even, during the Reagan era, why would they even run for the presidency? And so what I'm finding is that these third parties, you know, who were seen as these useless candidates that were just, you know, trying to make a name for themselves and not really contributing anything to the polity, actually did some really great things for introducing blacks into um, political participation, right? They helped register people to vote. They helped bring up single issues um, that got people into of politics in some way, shape, or form. They help raise money. And so when their campaigns ultimately, quote, unquote, failed, and I don't like to see them as failures, well, you've already pulled in, even if it's only 5,000 black people, you've pulled in 5,000 black people who were actually participatory. And if you think about um, the length of time that African Americans have been politically active as a large group, it's actually not that long. I mean, keep in mind, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65 are, are you know, not too, too long ago. I mean, my mother was in college during that time period. So it's not like African Americans have had to franchise full stop for a very long time. So I'm looking at the significance of these these quote-unquote failures and how they've actually contributed to what many argue is the greatest golden prize ever, which is to have an African-American president in the White House.
0: Yeah, Well, I look forward to that. And for all of those that are interested in uh, Christina's current book, uh, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream, that was published this year by Oxford University Press, it's available widely. Christina, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much.